excited to be here and jump into the book of Ephesians with you. I want to start by telling you a story that um, I remember it had such an impression upon me in high school. And because uh, I watched how um, my friend was impacted by the voice of his father. Um, I grew up with this guy. I knew him um, from elementary school all through high school. Great athlete, strong. Um, just one of those guys that um, God just gave him the gift of, of strength and athletic ability. And he could kick a football or a soccer ball just a mile long. And, um, but what I remember most clearly, not just about how strong and athletic he was, but the pressure his dad put upon him. And here we are, um, you know, in a, a varsity context. There's lots of people in the stands. And above everybody cheering, everyone on that field and everyone on that team could so clearly hear his dad's voice. His dad's voice would scream like, that's awful, if he missed. You could hear his dad say it. You could hear, come on. And I grew up hearing that voice and I watched how my friend would go out on that field with all the pressure of just having to make that field goal and how a great kicker who in practice could kick a ball, I mean, a mile long, would feel so dejected because of the voice of his dad. And you could, you could watch it shape him. Uh, in some ways, I felt like it shaped me, right? Because we could all hear his dad, who I think in his heart just wanted his son to do well, but it was more about his probably how his dad looked than it was how his son looked. And it shaped him. And it got to the point where he was missing extra, extra points, real easy kicks, um, because he, he continued to feel the pressure of his dad. And I tell that story because I think many of us live today um, listening to voices in our head that are not the voices the Lord would want you to to be attentive to. The reality is all of us hear this particular voice that I'm about to identify, whether we want to admit it or not. We don't like to admit it, but it's the voice of, of shame. Shame's not a, a word we really often use. We'll talk about anxiety. We'll talk about fear. We'll talk about um, sadness or sorrow. But shame is a really, really powerful voice. And shame's voice sounds like this. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I don't belong. No one should pick me. This is the voices of shame. And it's reinforced throughout your life. It could be a high school coach. It could be a teacher. It could be a friend group. It could be that you didn't pass your CPA exam. You didn't get into college of your choice. That old high school girlfriend broke up with you. You were picked last for kickball in elementary school. You didn't make first chair violin. Your child doesn't speak to you. 
or your wife walked out on you? I don't know. But so many of us are living, telling ourselves a narrative and living within a particular context, a story where the loudest voice we hear is the voice of shame, and it's crippling. It's the voice we hear when we walk out on the field to try to kick that field goal. And so what we're doing is we're doing everything we can to prove that voice wrong. Whether it's career advancement, financial status, material wealth, um, entrance into a particular club, social club, friend group, academic achievement, promotion at work, who we sleep with, entertainment, hobbies, we pursue it. We want to prove that, no, we, we do have worth. We do matter. Or I do belong. But in the back of our, our mind, there's that voice saying, hey, don't miss that kick. Don't miss that kick. Don't miss that kick. Keep up, keep up, keep up. And uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we have, we've experienced that shame before. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Shame is the tool, not of the father, but of the enemy. Uh, the Hebrew word is Satan, which you use the word Satan, which literally means adversary. You have an adversary who wants to destroy your relationship with the Lord. And in destroying the vertical relationship you have with the Lord, he also simultaneously destroys the relationship you have with other people. And so because of shame, we're drawn, we're pushed away from the Lord and we're, we push others away. We're hurt. Hurt people then hurt people because we live with shame. And if we're all honest, we've experienced that to one degree or another. This is different from conviction. Okay, I'm gonna talk a little bit about conviction as well. Conviction is what the Holy Spirit does to convict us of sin and convince us of another story. That yes, we live in a broken world, but the reality is, is that there's a God in heaven who loves us and has provided grace and forgiveness and acceptance and has placed us in a whole nother story. Um, Shame is what drives you from God and drives you from others. You remember what happened with Adam and Eve? When they ate of the fruit, they recognized their brokenness, that they were their differences, they were naked, and they, they ran and they hid from God and they hid from each other. That's shame. So I wonder what story you're living in this morning. Um, one guy, uh, he wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. He said this, we are storytellers. We yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty. And this is the echo of God's intention. We long for our stories to be about joy, not just reflections of what we believe, but of who we are, who we long to be. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to do what? Distort God's story and offer another narrative. And so what I want to present to you guys is that 
Uh, the Lord is writing your story. And he always has your best interest in mind. He always has your best interest in mind. He's calling you in a relationship with himself. He's calling you in a relationship with, within the church, his body, the people of God. But that's not often the story and the reality in which we live in and what we tell ourselves. You might intellectually have trusted in Jesus Christ. You may have physically walked down at First Baptist Church, small town Texas, and said, oh yeah, I remember when I trusted in Christ. But I wonder how much that, the gospel informs your reality today. Does that gospel story, is it more than a transaction that you made at camp or at First Baptist at the altar call? Is the gospel the story you're living in and what you believe about ultimate reality, both about who you are and who those are around you, where life and peace is found, where relationship with God is maintained and where you flourish and how you can be right related to other people? Or is your life one of running and brokenness and broken relationships and pain and fear and insecurity? I don't know where you are, right? You could come to church, you could go to Summit, you could be in a community group, you could serve, you could do all those things. Um, and on the outside, look like you've got it going on on the inside. It's the voice of shame that keeps you up at night. It's what keeps you running, it's what motivates you, it's what drives you to succeed. And it's not the gospel that informs your relationships. It's not the gospel that informs your relationship with the Lord today or your relationship with those in your family or those you work with. And so what I wanna do is I wanna look at uh, one of the richest passages of scripture, and that's Ephesians chapter two. And um, this is certainly for those who don't have a relationship with Christ. And I, and I hope that you would first and foremost hear this passage and learn how you could be right related to a God in heaven who loves you and created you in his image. And... Um, and how that relationship then should transform the relationship you have with others. But even more so, I imagine most of us in this room do have a relationship with Christ. And I want you to consider how the gospel not only informs um, what you chose, what you believed at the moment of your conversion, or what that means about your eternity, but about today, about right now. And so I want to read Ephesians chapter 2. Let's, we're going to read... Uh, verses one through 10, and we're gonna see um, verses one through 10 talk about our, us individually, that, that vertical relationship with the Lord. And then we'll read um, verses 11 through 22 and what it says corporately, what the significance of the cross is both for us and our relationship with the Lord and then how that impacts relationships with each other. So let's just read one through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now I want you to, Think about just verses one through three and, and what it says about 
our story, the ultimate reality. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, who we once were before Christ. This is who we were before Christ. What does it say? It says, well, number one, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? What can a dead man do? Nothing. That as a result of our sin, our rebellion against God, we were separated from a righteous, perfect, holy God. We rebelled against him and we were separated from him. We chose not to live according to his will and his way. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. That is who we once were. That is true. But look at verse four. One of the greatest um, truths you'll, you'll find, great hopes of scripture. Look, look at that contrast in verse four, but God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in, in Jesus Christ, then you can rest in the truth of knowing that your father's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. He doesn't look at you and go, oh, you missed another kick. Don't go home tonight. But you're loved. And notice that he didn't wait for you to get your life right. He loved you when you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Despite your sin, despite your rebellion, God pursues you. That's the most amazing thing. The world tells you you gotta get your life right. You gotta start, you gotta clean up. You gotta look impressive before you'll be accepted. The gospel says just the opposite that there's nothing you can do, that you're gonna miss multiple kicks. But the father's not mad at you. He wants a relationship with you. And when you trust him, because of his great love, his grace, his unmerited favor, this is who you are. You are loved by God. You have a father in heaven who loves you despite your quote unquote performance. He loves you. Nothing can change that. That you're, you are you are saved, you are secure, you are forgiven. That you are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You'll notice, and I, I know I'm sure you heard from past, in the past several weeks, that in the heavenly places is repeated throughout the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about just our wealth with, with, <laughs> our wealth with Christ, what Christ has done for us, and 4 through 6 what the result is. It's the indicatives of grace. Here are the truths. This is who you are. You've got to know this first. And then four through six is how you live that out, how you respond. That's how Paul lays out all of his books. Romans 1 through 11, this is the truth of God's word. This is who you are. 12 through 16, this is now how you respond. And you've got to understand the significance of the order. 
is that God is not looking at you like a, a father with disdain and contempt and like you gotta perform, but he's one who loves you and has, is offering grace, freedom, and forgiveness and he's telling you a different story if you'll believe him. And when we rest in the grace of God, we have peace with God. We have freedom. We have forgiveness. We have acceptance. And what's the basis of that? Well, it's probably maybe the first verse you ever memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a what? Free gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. And you've been given a new purpose. Look at what verse 10 says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, gang, God has chosen you. He selected you to be on his team, not because of what you've done, but because of his love for you. He's given you a new life. He's given you a new identity. He's given you a new purpose. And he has prepared for you, Christian, great works that you would do not to earn his love, but because you've already received it. Your trophies of his grace. And so regardless of what shame tells you, What's most important is what God says about you. And because of the cross, because of what Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have peace with God. This relationship with the Lord, we are able to draw near to him with confidence. The book of Hebrews says, draw near the throne of grace with confidence. That we're children of God. And we now have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified, we've been declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel not only transforms our relationship vertically, it transforms our relationship horizontally. Regardless of of what you may think or you may believe because of our individualized Western American mindset, we, we are not just individuals who trusted in Christ and have a hope of going to heaven. No, God is, he is creating a new family, a new body, a new network of relationships, which he invites you to be a part of, his church. That you're not meant to live the Christian life alone, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, work harder. It's not the gospel plus work hard, and then you'll be accepted. Plus the gospel, work hard, and then others will will allow you to join their club. That's not it. That's not the gospel. Look what happens horizontally to our relationships. Beginning of verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, well, that's, that's not all that encouraging, right? 
And we, you're sitting there going, wait a minute, we're talking about circumcision? Like, what in the world does circumcision have to do with my relationship with Christ? So Paul is a Jew, and if you know much about your Old Testament story, God's people, the Jewish people, were called to be a, set apart from all the other nations of the earth there to be a kingdom of priests. And God said, from you, Abraham, is going to come one who's going to be the Messiah, who's going to rescue my people and establish my eternal throne, who's going to bring heaven to earth. And his name is Jesus. And what is going to set you physically apart from everybody else in the world is circumcision. That's going to be a reminder to you that there's a hope, that there is one to come from you and the Jewish line. And the Jews put their faith and their belief in their tradition and their heritage and their family and their ancestry and the covenant promises of God. But God the whole time was looking for their hearts. And he made it really clear, hey, what saves you is not the fact that you're Jewish. What saves you is grace through faith. And what Paul is doing here is what he's capitalizing on is he's saying, hey, there's, there's this animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what God has done is he said, hey, these are artificial barriers. And you may feel like you're on the outside. You were once not a part of this covenant community. But God all along has designed this throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, to use the Jewish people to use God's people to be that kingdom of priests so that others might know the hope and the love of God. And what he's saying is, is hey, you not only have peace with, with God vertically, but you now have an opportunity to be right, rightly related to others despite the fact that you at one time separated, alienated strangers, having no hope and without God. Look at verses 14 through 18. He says, um, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in this flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In the, in the church, gang, the, war, the, the, uh, the division the world experiences, it should not be so. Within the family of God, you're not divided by race. You're not divided by education. You're not divided by athletic talent. You're not divided by what you do. You're not divided by family background. That at the cross, when you trust in Jesus Christ, God has created a new man, a new body, a new flock, whatever metaphor you want to use, and God uses a lot, a new household of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and we are the living stones that are built upon him. That the gospel has implications now for how we get along with one another. And it should change the way in which we relate to people who disagree with us. It should change the way in which we relate to people who don't look like us, don't think like us. 
The gospel has enormous implications, not just for you as an individual and your right relationship with God, but how you treat other people. And notice who you are, who we are collectively in 19 through 22. For, though, or for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There it is. Welcome to the family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We only have a couple more minutes, so I'll just wrap up with this. 1 John 4, 10 and 11, 19 through 21 says this, and this summarizes it very well. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us. We didn't choose him. We didn't clean up our life. We didn't get it right in order to then be acceptable before the Lord. In this is love. God chose you. God loved you. But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means satisfaction. He paid the wrath. He paid the penalty. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved you to the point that he would send his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins and mine, we also ought to love one another. How can we receive such a love of the love of God like that, knowing who we once were, and then choose not to love others? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let me just ask you, how are you doing? What story are you living in and what do you believe about God? When you think of God, do you think of that father in the stands who's telling you you don't measure up, that you missed another kick, that you gotta perform for him? That's the, that's the tool of the enemy. That's the voice of shame. Or do you hear the voice of, hey, I love you despite your sin. I care for you. I desire a relationship with you. That no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've done it, there's grace. And how are you doing at loving other people? How are you doing at resolving conflict? Do you find your kids are walking on eggshells around you? Because candidly, you're just hard to live with. Is your wife, she's physically present, but emotionally, she's keeping her distance? Let's just be honest, man. You having a hard time making friends? People pursuing you? What do non-believers think about you? What about people who don't vote like you? What do they think of you? What about people who don't look like you? Right? Are you, those, are you the guy that others look to and go, hey man, I don't know what it is about you, but there's something really different because you seem to take an interest in people even when 
They have radically different views from you. You seem to pursue people. You seem to have a patience with those who wrong you. You seem to respond when you're overlooked for that promotion in a way that like, you have a different set of values. You, you run with guys in community in a way that I'm envious of. Like I want relationships like that, but I don't have it. And so the gospel has tremendous implications for us, men. Not just in, are you going to heaven? So much more than that. But in what we believe day to day about ourselves, about our world, and about other people. And my hope and my prayer is, is that shame would be the voice that would be diminished more and more every day. And the, the gospel would be the voice that would become louder and louder in your life every day. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for Ephesians 2 and the clarity of which, which your, word, your word speaks. Um, Father, the voice of shame for so many of us is so loud. We've made decisions, Lord, we're not proud of. Um, we've been told by those who um, we love. We've been told by this world that we don't belong, we don't measure up, or we don't have what it takes. And, um, and so, Lord, so many of us are striving to prove that voice wrong and we're hurt. And so in our brokenness, Lord, we have a lot of broken relationships around us. I pray, Lord, that the, the gospel truth would um, be the loudest voice today for each of us, that we would consider what Ephesians 2 has to say about who we are in our relationship with you and how we are, we are to relate to other people. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help my friends in this room, Lord, begin to walk in freedom, walk in grace and acceptance. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to reevaluate what we believe, what story we're telling ourselves, to look at the motivations of our heart, and that we would live in community with other godly men and believers. We push past just the superficial and we'd be brothers for one another to be an encouragement to each other in a world that so continuously tries to beat us down. So Father, thank you for loving us when we were unlovable, for initiating with us, pursuing us and allowing us to have peace with you. And because of that, Lord, um, we can now have peace with others. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.